0: Well, g'day and welcome to Beyond. Please feel free to take a seat. Uh, If this is your first time here at Beyond Tonight, a big uh, welcome. You've actually jumped in at part four of this uh, five-part series uh, that's called Brand New. Uh, My name's actually Riley. I'm part of the Beyond leadership uh, team here at the church. Uh, My name's actually Riley Connor. I'm Pokemon Go. If you ever want to battle me at the gym or we can sort something out there. Um, But this uh, premise that we've been working off, this premise that we've been working off, for the last uh, four weeks or so is that uh, with the arrival of Jesus launched this brand new movement. This brand new movement uh, that actually drew an end to this temple model thinking. This temple model thinking that's actually influenced uh, the outside view of Christianity as a religion, but also influenced us as Christians as well, and how we uh, prioritise laws over actually our relationships with other people. Uh, so in the midst of the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at this question, this question of what does love require of me and this is this question that we've kind of drawn out between these two models of this temple model and this brand new model and in light of this question of what does love require of me it's a question that i actually had a lot of trouble with two weeks ago you see two weeks back uh it was actually an average friday for me or for what i thought was an average friday as i went out to work i uh, see this friday was actually the friday that i forgot my mom's birthday Uh, My mum's actually here tonight, so now she knows that I actually forgot her birthday on that day. Uh, But this Friday was the day that I actually forgot my mum's birthday. And you see what happened in in this panic as I received a text from one of my best friends who even knew that it was my mum's birthday on my way back from work. I panicked and I thought, I have to get her some present. How can I make up in this situation? How can I make sure that she knows that I at least tried in some way? So I thought through the cliche things that you can buy your mum for a birthday. I thought, well... Can go buy her a candle. I could get a. I could get a book. And I thought, what would Mum really want? What would what would my Mum really want? What would just improve my Mum in a way? And it hit me, a new pair of sneakers from Foot Locker. What other Mum wouldn't want a brand new pair of kicks? A brand new pair. Of Nike shoes from Foot Locker. So I walked uh, into Foot Locker, I got down, down to Westfield, I turned right, I had a bit of a jump in my step and I was excited because I knew mum would love him because I would love him and part of the reason I look back now, I kind of think that I was probably shopping for myself more than I was shopping for my mum. But as I walked into Foot Locker, as soon as I walked in smack bang, right in the back right corner, on the sail rack as well, which was a win but I never would have told mum that, on the sail rack was this lovely pair of Nike casual sneakers. Straight off the bat, I walked over and I said, this is a pair of Michelle Brown shoes. Michelle Brown's my mum, just so you know as well. And I said, this is a pair that my mum will love. And in my excitement, knowing that it was on sale as well, I was like, well, this is it. This is a gift. This is going to make up for it! This is going to win her over. I made my way over to the counter. And as I got to the counter, there was actually a guy uh, there at the counter. He had this footlocker hat on. his and the black and white straps, the black and white striped shirt. And uh, as I walked up to the counter... I started pulling out my credit card, I was ready to pay for it, and this guy actually lifted up his hat. You see, as he lifted up his hat and I actually saw his face, my excitement kind of dropped. See, I was no longer terribly excited to buy these pair of shoes because standing in front of me was my arch-nemesis from under-15s soccer. I don't know if you've ever actually had an arch-nemesis before in a sporting context, in in team sports maybe. It was someone from school that you always just had to one-up academically. I don't know what this might look like for you, but at Foot Locker, the guy who's going to serve me and uh, I was going to buy these shoes off him was my arch nemesis from soccer. And you're probably thinking, Riley, what could he have done? And, Like in a broader sense, I just have a really difficult time not disliking this person. I'm not going to go as far to say hate, but I have a difficult time not disliking this person because you see, the one action, the one action that drew me not to have a great impression of this guy came back to a game in under 15s. And in this game, uh, my best friend, one of my close friends, someone that's close to my heart is my friend, Matt. And Matt is this really agile player. He had great technique, but Matt was also a very gentle person. You could kind of push Matt around in the field and he'd take it. Except in this one game, it just kind of got out of hand. And this guy who was working at Foot Locker, his 15-year-old self, just did this crunching slide tackle on him. This absolutely horrendous slide tackle. And I don't know if you've ever seen an under-15 fight before in soccer. You might see it in rugby and State of Origin, how they all come in and fist. In soccer in under-15s, everyone's chest just kind of rises 10 centimetres high and everyone's voice drops like four octaves deeper. And then everyone's just saying, bro, 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 bro. And see, in this situation, I have have no ability to defend my mate Matt, mostly because I just don't eat testosterone for breakfast like the rest of these guys. I, I have no way to even manage myself in this situation. So I was completely withdrawn. But what did hurt me... What did hurt me was the fact that this guy actually hurt someone that was close to me. You can't compensate for, for hurting someone that's, that's terribly close to my heart. In fact, if I was to tell you maybe two other people that were maybe a run above Matt, pointing you directly to my mum. You see anyone on the day of my mum's birthday that actually remembered her birthday, that served her on her birthday, or actually looked after her on her birthday and made sure it was a special day, is, is someone that I actually honour. In fact, anyone that does that constantly when they see my mum is someone that I honour. And maybe on that same run, maybe on that same run, you're thinking, well, oh, who could be better than mum? Who could be better than mum?" I'd refer you over to my grandma, my g And I don't know if you have a grandma like my grandma, but you can literally tell my grandma, you can literally tell my grandma that the fridge is empty, that there's no food, even when it's completely full. And she'll be over at the house in five minutes flat. She will give you a complete roast. She lives 20 minutes away, but she'll be over in five minutes. See, my grandma exceeds the limits in that. Way. If you needed to get from point A all the way to Caloundra, a 45-minute drive away, she would get you there in five minutes. She would literally exceed the speed limits to get you there. That's the love that my grandma shows for me. And you see, this is, this is where we got caught up. Because if you were to ever hurt my mom, or if you were to ever hurt my grandma in a way, it would hurt me. And this is the question we've been asking. How are we meant to leverage love in these situations? When the people that we, we're required to leverage love to are just someone that we just can't do that for. And in this mindset, it comes back to this temple model thinking. And the temple model thinking we've been look at looking at, there's, there's four key aspects. There's four key aspects in this temple model thinking. That in this uh, temple model, there is always a sacred place. Whether that's the temple itself, a cathedral, or even a patch of dirt. And in these sacred places, there's always a sacred texts, whether it's scripture or parchment or even oral tradition that's been written down, there's always a sacred text in this sacred place. And with these sacred texts, they're always controlled by sacred men. And these sacred men who, who control these sacred texts always have these sincere followers or superstitious followers that lie under them, or even scared followers that are dependent on the sacred men. And see, the difference between this uh, temple model thinking that's that's been introduced after this brand new movement is that in this brand new model that was launched with Jesus has four vastly different things. See, in this brand new model, there's a new covenant, a new promised relationship, a new command, one command that supersedes all others. And then there's a new ethic that actually trickles through the followers. And from that new ethic, a new movement is actually identified as the church. You see, with the arrival of Jesus, this, this brand new model uh, was launched, except it's almost expected uh, within religion in a way that, that we get caught out in misleading ourselves to feel required to go to these sacred places to discuss this sacred text. It's almost like this sacredness actually becomes more important than our relationship with other people and our relationship with God as well from this Christian perspective. You see, uh, a class A example of this temple model thinking is actually that line of sin that we draw for ourselves. That line of sin that we know is a sin, but we, we, don't, we don't go past it. We feel like we can't go past it until we do go past it. All of a sudden, we're digging ourselves further and further past this line of sin. In this way, it's, it's a bit like stalking someone on Facebook. I don't know if you've ever met someone on Facebook, then you jump in their profile and you start going through their photos and all of a sudden, you're just flicking through 2016 photos and then all of a sudden, you're on 2014 Christmas holidays photos and then all of a sudden, you're in 2007 and you're looking at these Easter photos from way back and you like one of the photos and then all of a sudden, this, this line that you've drawn for yourself before, like, where it becomes too creepy, too creepy stalking someone on Facebook. You kind of draw the line there and you get caught out. And then you know you never cross that line again. You, you unlike the photo, and you know you to never cross that line again. You see, we kind of draw this line for ourselves. And then we step back from it and we know not to go there again. You see, this is an example of temple model thinking. It's pretty much like saying, I'd like to sin, but I don't want to tick God off. Like, where's this line? Like, I know what, what sin is, but but where is it? Where is it, God? How can I make you happy? See, the thing is, temple model thinking all this, all, uh, in all these ways always comes back to you. Temple model is you-centered. It's always asking, what must I do or what must I believe to make things right between me and God? And see, it, it seems and it looks God-centered, but it always comes back it's you. You're asking yourself these questions like, I only really need to get back to church and stop watching The Voice on a Sunday. I really need to start putting more money in the offering and maybe spending it less on the Chicken McNuggets. Potentially. Might not be the questions you're asking. But these are some of the examples that comes with this temple model thinking. See, it seems like we're doing something that will please God, but it's actually coming back to you. See, temple model thinking always gravitates towards rules, and rituals. We always prioritize these rules and rituals and asking this question of what exactly must I do? What exactly must I believe? And ultimately, it looks like me getting what I want without losing God's favor. And see, with this temple model thinking, there's, there's always loophole thinking. There's always an escape clause. Unfortunately, with these escape clauses, it also produces hypocrites, in a way. And maybe for you, maybe these... Christian hypocrites might be actually a reason why you can't even think of ever even stepping in to a church community or you can't even think about even considering Christianity as an option because you see people that come up to you and sell this item like it's the best thing you could ever have and even though you see what they believe you know for a fact that they don't value it by how they treat other people and by their actions and how they show that potentially even over the weekend. We have these Christian hypocrites come into play. They seemingly talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. See, we lean into God. We ask, what must I do? What must I believe to make you happy? And openly, if you're someone that's on this journey of faith, or you do identify yourself as a Christian, this is thinking that Jesus has invited you to completely abandon. This is an invitation uh, that following Jesus is an invitation to leave what It means to be all about you and actually embrace all about the you beside you. So this Jesus model is actually centered on the you beside you. You're probably thinking, what does that mean? It sounds like some type of like Siamese twin principle, like what's going on here? And see, this is what this brand new model actually launched. It says that there's this one command that supersedes all commands. There's the one thing that you can take from the text It's just this, this one commandment. In John 15, verse 12, it says this is my one commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. My one commandment, the one thing you can take away. In fact, Paul, and if you know who Paul is from the Bible, you know uh, that he's done his fair share in the Bible. He wrote his fair amount of things. Paul himself actually says for the entire law, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Command: Love your neighbour as yourself. That's it. Out of out of everything, out of everything in the Bible, it all weighs on this idea of love your neighbour as yourself. That faith expressed through love and love another just as I have loved you. It's this complete departure from temple thinking. And you might be thinking, this it just seems so straightforward, though. Like putting others first. Like you. You don't actually need to be a church person to know that that might actually be a good thing. See, seemingly like this love idea, it's just a symptom of, of life and time. There's even tyrant dictators out there that surely know what it means to feel love or surely know the capability of what love can do or surely knows what it means to even give and feel love. It's just this trait of humanity. And that's, just a, that's a commentary that could be from both the inside of a church but from the outside as well. Like, we, we know this. It, it seems straightforward. We intuitively know this. You might be thinking, but what about the rules and the rules and ritual? Like, clearly God put these in place for a reason. Like, what about the Ten Commandments? If we could, to go through and have a look at a couple of thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not lie. If we were to pitch that within a church, what, what would your answer be? Well, thou shalt not lie. Well, obviously God you know, firstly, that, that is a Ten Commandment. Like, God doesn't like it when we lie. Jesus didn't lie. Like, lying is bad. We generally know that. So why should we tell the truth? And you see, from the inside of the church, it's easy to say those things. But at the same time, this, this is actually an example of this temple model thinking. Why tell the truth? Well, clearly a sacred text says that. Like, the Bible says about it but ultimately what, what jesus is saying is tell the truth because lying to somebody else actually hurts the person beside you it's actually elevating yourself at the expense of somebody else it's hurting the person beside you so why should we be generous oh well it's also in the bible like god likes it when i sneak some money into the offering like if other people see me being generous and and putting money into charity and like even if they don't see that, like, God will see that too. It's the same thing. If I shout my mates to Cheeky Nando, it's like, God will see that. They'll be, they'll be happy about it. That's how it works. But the reason to be generous, and you know this as well, is that the reason to be generous is that it helps the person you're generous too. It's like, thou shall not gossip. Oh, why shouldn't we gossip? Oh, Jesus didn't gossip. It's bad. Everyone knows gossip isn't good for anyone. Like, it's pretty straightforward. You and I intuitively know that gossip actually elevates yourself at somebody else's expense. It's saying, I'm going to put love aside for a second and put me at the center. See, this self-centered concept is what is at the heart of this temple model. See, ultimately, from a church perspective, it's so easy to actually fall back on this idea of forgiveness. That even though we set up this line and, and we know what it means to, to, to do these sins, that we intuitively know that it is a sin and we cross it anyway. That we always can fall back on this idea of forgiveness. Because we know what the cost of this forgiveness was. But ultimately, temple model thinking, over time and over history, within the church and outside the church, just as people actually whitewashes this whole concept of forgiveness, this whole core of what faith is. And you don't need to be a part of a church to know what it means to forgive or to be forgiven. And this is what God says. You you don't need to go any deeper than the simplicity of this one command, this one simple command. That the New Testament, the imperatives, they're they're all examples of how to demonstrate the love of God by loving others. And this is when Jesus kind of spat out this big Kanye West moment, this big game changer. He kind of stood up, and Jesus said that all the laws, all the laws, and all the prophets hung on this one thing. Love God and love your neighbor. That everything, everything in the Bible just hung on this one thing. Love God and love your neighbor. You're probably thinking, well, like, Riley, this sounds great. Like, I'm a church person. I understand what this means. Like... Looks good, but I've just noticed that you've said love about 72 times in the message so far. Like, I'm just getting this vibe that there's kind of like this Christian hippie thing going on. Like, it seems like great sentimentality. Like, I'd go down to Byron Bay, I'd get the same vibes. Like, that's what you're saying. Here's the reality of it, that the Jesus model is is less complicated, but it's far more demanding. So this Jesus model is less complicated, but it's far more demanding so because at the epicenter of this faith and the epicenter of this teaching and the epicenter of this whole big thing of Christianity is actually a man who actually came and died in the blood and saliva of other men and it's easy to find a place to hide in the temple it's always easy to find a loophole in the temple to sin but I would say that would be vastly more challenging have a much more difficult time finding a loophole in the bigger picture of this Jesus model see it's easy to hide from application but it's hard uh, to walk away or or not see a loophole or sorry to find a loophole in this, this brand new model and what Jesus says that even in your relationships have the same mindset as Christ it's hard to find a loophole in love your enemies and do good to those who hate you It's hard to find a loophole um, in, sorry, just the last one, be merciful. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, following Jesus, there is no place to hide. There's no loopholes because in most situations and in most relationships, we intuitively know the answer to this question of what does love require of me? And you know, in God's response to, to answering this question, in response to saying, what does lo- love require of me? It actually cost him his son. Jesus died, and then all he said was, follow me. All in response to this question, what does love require of me? So what could this look like? What could this look like if, if just for a month, just within your family, you applied this question, you applied it and you lived it out actively for a month, what would love require of me. What if for just a fortnight, just at your workplace, everyone in your workplace actively responded and lived out to this question of what does love require of me? What would it look like if just down at Northlake Shopping Centre, for a mere week, everyone responded to this question of what does love require of me? And could you imagine what it would look like to see what Brisbane, the city of Brisbane, would look like for a mere day if we all acted and applied this question of what does love of me and if you are uh, someone who who does identify yourself as a christian i want to pitch this to you could you imagine a world where people are actually critical of christians because of not what we believe but but envious of us because of how we treated one another and how we actually treated people outside of that circle not just within the mind frame of of the church or within the circle of our Christian friends, but outside of that circle as well? What could that look like? What could you see differently? You might be thinking, but this just seems... It seems like it's not all about God anymore. Like, where's this relationship side of it? And you might fall back on earlier on when we cracked the series open that we were talking about something not being vertical, but actually horizontal. And like, this is what God was looking for. Like, what, what does this mean? See, Jesus actually answered this. And he answered in a way that was really interesting in some ways. And if you're looking for the, for the glory in this relationship, here's what he says. Jesus responds, when, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as sheeps, as, as, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goat. They said... He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, who you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. There it is, that's the glory of God. They say that you'll be blessed by my father, that these righteous men will be blessed. And not only that, they will take this inheritance that's been waiting for them since the beginning of the world. That's when Jesus looks back on them and, and in this stage, he's, he's just thrown all this information at them and his followers are just completely caught out. They're saying, well, what, what next, Lord? Like, why? Why us? Why have you chosen us? Like, why me? What have we done? And this is Jesus' reply. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to drink. For, oh, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. And you've got to be thinking, like, this sage, all these righteous men are like, what? What's the, what's the go? Like, what, do you remember Do you remember feeding the Lord? Like, I don't remember giving a drink. I don't remember having him over for dinner. And then Jesus says, I was a stranger, and, and you invited me in. He continues. He said, oh, I needed clothes. And you actually clothed me and by this age, the followers are kind of like what's going on here like i thought jesus just had a whole bunch of white robes i thought it's a bit like spongebob square pants that spongebob just has the same square pants like in his wardrobe there's just square pants all the way through like i thought that's what jesus had going for him like he just had this wardrobe of white robes like when when did we give you clothes lord like i don't remember any of this this doesn't ring a bell at all and then jesus goes on and he says i was sick and you looked after me he said, I was in prison. And by this stage, the followers are like, what? You're in prison, Lord? You're sick and you're in prison? How's that even possible? And you came to visit me. And see, the righteous men kind of look around. And they're looking at each other and like, this doesn't make sense. And they ask this question. And they say, Lord, when did we see you? Lord, when did we see you? hungry and give you something to eat lord when did we see you thirsty when did we see you sick when did we see you in prison lord like when did we see you here it is and jesus replies he says the king will reply truly i tell you whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me See, Jesus was, was talking about actually seeing him. It was beyond this spiritual encounter. Maybe you're someone who's, who's actually for yourself seen God. Maybe you've heard of someone seeing God before through, through worship or, or just being at church. Or, or maybe every time uh, you actually go out to Sizzlers and you just see the salad bar, like you get a little bit of a glimpse of heaven. Like maybe that's seeing God for you. But see, what Jesus was talking about here was beyond this spiritual encounter. It was, it was so much more than that. See, the essence of his followers isn't actually about you. But this Jesus model is actually centered on the you beside you. This is what the hallmark of God's followers is. He says, Your devotion to God is illustrated and demonstrated and authenticated by your love for others. But there's just such simplicity as Christians saying, Love God, love your neighbour. Drawing this back to the start, it, it, it's terribly difficult to love someone when you've seen them hurt someone that's close to you. It would be terribly difficult for me to actually love someone if they ever did a crunching slide tackle on my grandma or my mum. I don't know how I'd react in that situation. Maybe I'd start eating testosterone after that. But it would be terribly difficult for me to act with love in that situation. It's terribly difficult at times to leverage love, but intuitively, we know the answer to this. We know that it's not as terribly difficult as we think. See, this is what God says. He says, the best way to honor me is to actually do something for the person I love. And maybe this is something that actually resonates with you. That the best thing someone can do for you is to actually do something for the person that you love. We do this thing at... Uh, beyond called For Monday, because we believe what's the point in in coming to church on Sunday if it's not going to change you for Monday. And this week's For Monday, I I just want to pitch this question to you. And you don't have to be someone who's considerably churched. You don't have to be someone who's ever stepped into a church before or even thought about stepping into Christianity before, because this is something that can definitely apply to you. And this week's For Monday is just looking at and actively uh, applying to this question of what would it look like? What would it look like to love people the same way you love those are closest to your heart? What would it look like to love people outside of your circle the same way that you love people closest to your heart? And maybe this is something that if you do identify yourself as a Christian that you can take in. What would it look like to, to step beyond the church or to step beyond your Christian friends and love them the same way that you love the people closest to your heart? What if it was that simple as what does love require of me? This is what God says, God's calls to. He says, to, to honour me that, to honour God, I will love you. It's about loving the you beside you. What if it was that simple? What if we just got that right? Because ultimately, you could see change within your family. You could see change within your workplace. You could see change if you went down to the North Lakes Centre. You could see how this could impact people within the city of Brisbane. But answering this question, what does love require of me? By loving people the same way you love those closest to your heart can ultimately change the world as well. We're actually going to wrap up in prayer. And as we do that, I'm going to invite the band up at the same time. So if you'd like to bow your heads and and close your eyes. Lord, we just pray that, that in the face of those we love, Lord, or even in the face of those uh, we see as as workmates, Lord, or or those we see as colleagues, or just members of the public, Lord, or even people that we consider as our arch nemesis, that we can actively respond to this question of what does love require of me? Lord, as as followers of you, we we can value this ability to love, and as people, we can actually cherish its potential to impact those around us. God, in in the midst, uh, as as Christians in prioritizing law and this sacredness law and and trying to preserve what's being said and trying to preserve these things that you commanded, that, Lord, we can fall back on the fact that there's one command that supersedes all, Lord. To love you, it's about loving others. What could that be? What could it look like, Lord, just to, to love the person that's beside us? Lord, I pray that that we can willingly and actively apply this love. Because, Lord, we intuitively know how to do it. And we we can act within our potential to lead with forgiveness. Lead with our heart. And lead with others, Lord. As we lead with you. In your name, amen.